Good morning. There was a news story a couple of months ago uh, that I actually rather enjoyed reading. There was a store that opened in California, I think it was in Santa Monica, uh, that opened, it replaced a very high-end uh, Armani shop, and they opened up, this, it was a shoe store, and it opened up, uh, the name of the, of the brand was P-A-L-E-S-S-I, um, Palessi, and it was um, a high-end pop-up or temporary store. And what they did is they found people that were considered influencers in the fashion industry, bloggers and those kinds of things, and invited them to come out to a grand opening of the store. They didn't have price tags, and they said, you know what, just review the product, and you can buy, but you can actually make us an offer, and you can pay what you think the product is worth. So people came out, um, there was a big buzz, they had kind of a party there, um, and in several hours they had sold about $3,000 worth of product, and the, most, the highest dollar item was a, a pair of sneakers that sold for $640. And people were happy with the quality. They were talking about, wow, how you know, people are going to ask them where they got their shoes. And uh, people were really excited about it. The problem was, this was all a joke. And they let it go on for a few hours. And then they revealed that the brand, instead of Pelesi, was actually Pay Less Shoes. And they filmed everybody, and so they even filmed the moment that people found out that they had either bought, all of the shoes were priced between $19.99 and $39.99, and people could just, on their impression, make an offer. And then they revealed uh, what the real price tag was. When I studied this week, I came away with such a conviction that the topic we're going to look at, Satan takes the price tag and turns it entirely upside down. The things that are valuable, he will make look, try to make look worthless. The things that are of utmost value, I mean, he just he flips the prices entirely around. And I was intrigued with a comment Lauren made when he opened the service. He said, God calls us to standards that we can't meet, and we need to respond in repentance. And then Joe, in devotions, covered the topic that I'm going to look at today, and that is, how do we respond when we feel wronged? And it is a... it's. My prayer as I look at my heart is just I can see how, how Satan and my own heart flips the price tag on this stuff. And I just hope that we can feel the weight of God's word and the value that he places on, on forgiveness and uh, not, not getting our way. So I would invite you to Luke 6. Um, the projector is not working this morning, so if you would open up to Luke 6. You can also stick your finger in Romans 12, and we're basically going to be in those two chapters um, and I would, I, and honestly, in studying this, it was one of these passages where I just, I read it, and the weight of it just hits you, and this is so far from what happens naturally for Ivan, um, and I just, I'm aware of God's, uh, needing God's work in my heart in that. So in Luke 6, um, the start of the chapter, there's Jesus heals on the Sabbath, um, the Pharisees are very upset about that, uh, in verse 12. He goes away to the mountain to pray. Um, he spends all night praying. He picks 12, um, 12 of his disciples or 12 apostles. And then he's gathered in a big group. And he's got a large group of disciples, the 12 apostles that he's just selected. And all of these people that have come to him um, to be healed and, and have just been cured. So I'd like to read, uh, starting in verse 20 and read through uh, verse 38, <clears throat> and then we're going to focus on 27 through 38. And just listen to the words and 
it's one of these that if you're like me, you're going to respond, but, but what about? Or is that really the way it is? And let's just, um, let's hear what God says. And he, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I'd like to pray again before we dig into this. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, I just pray that you would speak to me, you'd speak to each of us here. Um, God, we don't want to hurry across what you've said. We don't want to rationalize it away. Um, we want to hear your word and we want to obey it. So Father, would you, I don't know needs here. I pray that you, who does, that you would apply this um, and that we could walk with you and, and see your heart in all this. In Jesus' name, amen. So he just brought, he just picked the 12 disciples, and this is the first, how would you feel if you were that group? And this, these are the first words that he directs to you after choosing, calling out the 12 and saying, you know what, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what people who, who follow me, who've been changed by me, this is how, this is how it looks. This is how their heart looks. This is how they um, conduct themselves. So I'd like to just go through a little bit of what Jesus um, actually is saying here. And one thing to note, and I don't know the significance of this, but in the passage, almost everything is in groups of four. So he'll, he'll, he'll give groups of four, and that pattern continues. So we'll pick that up in verse 27. Um, so he's just given um, the Beatitudes as Luke records them, and then he says, but I say to you who hear, and the first thing he says is to love 
your enemies. And we hear that a lot, but that, can you imagine if you were there for the very first time hearing, hearing this, and he lists these first four things, and you would be thinking, did he really just say to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who despite, did he just say that? So he starts out, um, he just says, love your enemies. So it's obvious that love in this context is not a feeling. That we are, it is a choice of how we're going to treat another person. And the word is um, agape love, where we love somebody regardless of whether they are worthy of it or not. So he says, love our enemies, and it, it's not dependent on the other person. And in thinking about this, it's a little bit hard to put into context for me. Do, does anybody here have enemies? It, it's a little hard to think this way. Does the church have enemies? Are there enemies of the truth today? Absolutely. And how do we respond um, to those people? So we are to love. And in thinking about this, Christians of all people, this should make sense to us, even though it does not come naturally, because Christ loved us while we were his enemies. If Christ would not have loved his enemies, we would not be here this morning. We would not be, we would not be saved. He loved us and died for us while we were yet sinners. So I just, and I don't have the, the chart to put up here, but just read about, notice what um, the situation is and how we are to respond so when it comes to enemies, Christians are to respond with love. And he goes on to do good to those who hate you. And hate just, I literally just means to hate or to detest. And the, the side of the response for us is not that we just don't respond negatively, but we're actually to look to do good to those that hate. And as we go down through here, think about how often Jesus puts the, the burden of action onto the believers. And he says, if somebody hates you, we are, we are to do good. You know, when we, when we get hurt, um, we respond in one, in one of two ways. Either we want to fight back or we just want to, it's fight or flight. We want to get out of there and shut down. And that's very natural. Um, but Jesus says, when we encounter hate, that we are to actually do good. Then he says, to bless those who curse you. So maybe this is a little bit easier for us to relate to when people are literally, maybe literally cursing or um, the word has the idea of just to feel disdain and to talk down on. And our response is that we are to bless. And it has the idea of speaking well of the person. Or blessing is the idea of, of praying a blessing for somebody like a benediction. You know, um, I just, I ask you, Lord, that you would bless this person. Do you know how hard that is to do when somebody is, is cursing at us? that we are to, we're called to bless that person and ask God to bless them. And then it says to pray for those who abuse. And abuse here is the idea of insulting or slandering. Um, and just to clarify, it's not talking about abuse in the physical sense, but just slandering, speaking false things. And our response to that as believers, instead of going right back at them, is to pray. That we are called to pray for them. Obviously, you think of Jesus as an example of this, literally while he's being crucified. Father, forgive them. Stephen as well, while he was being martyred, um, prayed for those that were, that were killing him. So the response is to pray. So as I look down over this, these are, I mean, the words are big. They're enemies and, and cursing, and, but we all deal with, with much smaller things. And my reactions to the much smaller things are not, to pray and to bless. Um, so I want God, to, want God to change that. So I'd like to just share um, 
a story of something that happened in India. And again, we think of these, these big examples and they're clear pictures of what, what it means to have God's love do this. But we all have many chances to live this out um, throughout the week. Um, and this is from uh, an article by um, Desiring God. In January of 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, were mobbed by radical Hindus trapped inside their vehicle in India and burned alive. The three charred bodies were recovered clinging to each other. Graham Staines had spent 34 years serving the people of India in the name of Jesus. He was the director of the leprosy mission, and I won't attempt to say the name of the town. He left behind his widow Gladys and daughter Esther. Her response was in every paper in India to the glory of Christ. She said a few days after the martyrdom of her husband and sons, I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. Everyone thought she would move back to Australia. No, she said God had called them to India and she would not leave. She said, my husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. Then perhaps most remarkable of all, listen to this. Her daughter Esther, who was 13, asked how she felt about the murder of her dad. And the 13-year-old responded, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. So we read stories like this and the love of God is very evident. Only God does that. But we need the love of God just as much in the situations that we encounter day in and day out to let God's love um, determine how we respond. So those are the first four things. Then he goes on and he lists um, kind of examples or situations of this. And the first one, um, one that's very famous, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, how does a believer respond? Turn the other cheek. And one of the things to keep in mind is that in this culture, um, when you would greet somebody you would come up and you would kiss each other on the cheek. And so I think the idea is that you are extending, like you are extending a greeting and somebody just slaps you and complete insult, that you're still willing to, you know what, I want to try again. I'm going to extend forgiveness um, and turn the other cheek. Then he says, if somebody takes away your cloak, or in our case, takes away your coat, to give him your shirt also. Has anybody ever had something stolen from you? Anybody ever dealt with theft? I have, and I can tell you that this was not my natural reaction that, um, of trying to continue to meet their need. Then he goes on and says, if somebody begs from you um, to go ahead and give to them, so at least they're asking. It's not just stealing, but it's begging. And again, how do you respond when somebody comes and begs? And Jesus says, if somebody is begging, um, give to them. And it's almost like he can read our mind because are you thinking, well, if I do that, what if people just take my stuff? Anybody else think that way? And that is exactly what he says. Um, he goes on to say, um, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So those are the four situations uh, or examples that he uses. One thing I thought of um, when I was, I don't know, in my teens, I didn't lock my car and my mom would say, you know, you should lock your car. And my response was always kind of flippant, like, if somebody wants something, they can just have it. And so that was kind of how I lived. And then, somewhere along the way, my cell phone was stolen out of my vehicle. I was driving some 
this was not wise. Um, I was driving a Choice Books vehicle, and I used to put the key for the van in, the, uh, in with my change, and it had a little cover over it. One time I was working in Maryland, and that lid was lifted up, and all the change was gone, and the key was laying on the dash. I decided I would stop doing that at that point. Um, I lost a duffel bag full of clothes when I went skiing. Somebody stole my stereo from my Jeep. I lost my camera and lens, and I had a lawnmower stolen out of the back of our shed. And I came to realize that, you know what, God actually, I think he's taking me serious on this and testing me on it. So I, I don't say that anymore. <laughs> um, but it, when something is stolen, it just, internally, it just makes you mad. It just feels like somebody just took something that was mine, and I want to get it back, and I would like to see them pay for it. And Jesus asks that we, on a personal level, that we just uh, don't demand it back. None of this stuff makes sense unless it is the supernatural love of Christ in our heart that changes us. So if you're like me, you may want to try to say, does this really mean that? And then Jesus goes on in verse 31 with the golden rule, and he says, as you wish that others would do to you, do to them. And I think it's very important that we keep the golden rule in context. So he's just listed all of these eight things, and he says, as you would want others to do to you, do to them. So I want you to notice a couple of things. Today, when people try to figure out if something is right or wrong, they'll say, well, does it hurt anybody else? And if it doesn't hurt anybody else, it must be okay. Or you might hear the golden rule saying in the negative sense, don't do anything to anybody else that you wouldn't want them to do to you. They might, might say it that way. Or... Internally, we may want to do what people do to us. Just if they treat me kindly, I'll treat, it, treat them kindly back. But he puts the complete burden on us and he says, whatever you wish somebody would do to you, you are to do to them. And so we are to take the lead, to take the initiative, and, and to do um, what we wish others were doing for us. And this applies for friends and enemies alike. So again, it would be easier if people were doing this back to me, and it seems like God knows exactly what we think, because he goes on in verse 32 and says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. So we see this in our own lives and all around us, that people will, people will do good if they get something back. They'll lend if they get their money back. And Jesus is saying, what is the reward? Everybody will behave that way. There's no reward in that for you. Um, in my work, I attend a lot of, or a few different sales events, and at the end of the day, that's one of the things that I just, uh, I just about can't stand, is all of the people who are being nice, trying to establish a relationship to get something back. And you can just kind of tell where people are, are being genuine and actually just pushing their product, or if it's them in a self-serving way, and it just, you just want to leave and be like, I just want to relate to somebody genuine. And so, are we willing to do whatever we wish others would do for us with expecting nothing back, and in fact, actually expecting something negative back. Then he goes on in, in verse 35, and he summarizes this. He says, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So he's first saying, there's no reward if you just do it, if you just follow suit. But if you do what I'm saying, your reward is great, and he says, we will, be like, we will be sons of the Most High, or we will be like our Father. And he goes on to say that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. 
So if I think about, um, and then he goes on to say, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So if I think about how God is merciful, um, God is merciful to those that don't deserve it. God is merciful to me. God has seen every one of my actions, my attitudes, and my thoughts, and yet he was willing to die for me and give me grace. God, in relating to others, he delays judgment. He offers forgiveness. Do you think about it that God meets the needs of his enemies every single day? God actually meets the needs of his enemies every single day. And he, in fact, died for his enemies. And Jesus is saying, the people that come to know me in this new community of believers, enemies will not be treated as enemies. They will be loved. And then they will, um, that's how we know that we are like, like the Father. Then he goes on in verses 37 and 38, and these are more, um, what I would just, attitudes or, or more, more personal things. And again, he lists four different things. He says, judge not, we are, and we won't be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given. And the idea of judging um, and condemning has the idea of a judgmental attitude or focusing on the negatives of others. It does not mean that we are not to be discerning. And that's very clear if you read the rest of, of chapter 6, that we are to be discerning. It talks about the, the log and the speck, um, but there's a strong warning against judging and condemning. We are to forgive and to give. And again, notice how Jesus is putting the, the action on us. That we're to forgive and we're to, we are to give and we're to forgive and we are to take the action um, to do the good. Then he goes on to say, the same measurement that we use is what we will get back. And as I understand it, uh, when, when the Jewish people would go to the market and they would buy, say, a bushel of grain, they would need to use the same basket that they used to measure it is what they would actually deliver it or send it home. And so that somebody couldn't change it around where you'd measure it in one and then and send something else home. So, and I don't understand all of this, but a very simple illustration of this, um, I've got some measuring cups up here. And when it comes to how we treat other people, Jesus literally says, the same measure that you use is the measure that it comes back to you in. And is he talking about from him, from other people now and eternity, what I don't know what all to read into this, but he is very clear the same measurement that we use is how it will come back. And so often, it's easy to, you know, I'm, I want to uh, look out for my own rights and, and have a judgmental attitude and measure out something like this, but when it comes to what I want from other people and from God is something more like this. And he's saying the same measurement that you use is how, how it comes back to you. And if we're willing to live this way, he says it comes back a good measure, filled up, pushed down, and running out um, and running over. So, um, I just want to summarize these commands, and I know we hear them a lot, but I hope we don't lose the weight of them. So he says, enemies, we are to love. If we're hated, we're to do good. If someone curses, we're to bless. If we're abused, we're to pray. Somebody strikes our cheek, Offer the other. Takes away our coat, give our shirt. Begs, we're to give. Takes away our goods, we don't demand it back. That's a long list. And this is not a list that we look at and attempt to go do on our own. We absolutely can't do that on our own. It's only Christ. 
changing us on the inside and Christ's love literally flowing through us because that is not the way that we naturally live. We have received God's love to be able to give God's love in this way. And it has to be God's love um, flowing through this. So this is all very clearly talking about um, individuals and how we respond when we're wronged, um, situations that we face. And again, we can think big, but I'd also encourage you to think small. And does this attitude, does this attitude describe you as a believer and as a follower of Christ? And I expect you'll have many opportunities throughout this day and this week to respond to when you feel like you've been mistreated. So let's not look at, at this as a, um, a legalistic to-do list, but this is our attitude. This is what God, God um, wants of us. One thing I, um, I do want to talk about just a little bit here is that, like I said, this is obviously talking about individuals. And when we, when we look at this and say, you know, there's no way that I can live this out and participate in the military. We refer to that as being non-resistant. And one of the things that I want us to think about in this is just that there's no way, I don't know how that I can live this out as a part of my personal life and then participate in um, things like the military. So while I'm, this isn't entitled a non-resistant sermon, um, what I want you to hear is that non-resistance is so much more than not participating in the military. It is our entire approach to when we're wronged. How do we personally live that out? Um, and it comes down to, to these issues. Um, I do want to take the time to share an article um, from the Washington Post. Um, and just, I'd like you to listen to this. I don't know that this man is a believer. I don't think he is. Um, he is a Marine captain that served. Um, He served for several years, and I just, I want you to hear him wrestling with this passage and his, um, his decision to participate in it um, before we look at Romans 12 a bit. This is by Timothy Kudo, um, published in, in 2013. When I joined the Marine Corps, I knew that I would kill people. I was trained to do it in a number of ways, from pulling a trigger to ordering a bomb strike to beating someone to death with a rock. As I got closer to deploying to war in 2009, my lethal abilities were refined, but my ethical understanding of killing was not. I held two seemingly contradictory beliefs. Killing is always wrong, but in war it is necessary. How could something be both immoral and necessary? I didn't have time to resolve this question before deploying, and in the first few months I fell right into killing without thinking twice. We were simply too busy to worry about the morality of what we were doing. But one day in Afghanistan in 2010, my patrol got into a firefight and ended up killing two people on a motorcycle who we thought were about to attack us. They ignored or didn't understand our warnings to stop, and according to military's escalation of force guidelines, we were authorized to shoot them in self-defense. Although we thought they were armed, they turned out to be civilians. One looked no older than 16. It's been more than two years since we killed those people on the motorcycle, and I think about them every day. Sometimes it's when I'm reading the news or watching a movie, but most often it's when I'm taking a shower or walking down my street in Brooklyn. They are not the only deaths I carry with me. I also remember the first time a Marine several miles away asked me over the radio whether his unit could kill someone burying a bomb. The decision fell on me alone, and I said yes. 
Those decisions became commonplace over my deployment, even more frightening than the idea of what we were doing was how easy it became for me. I never shot someone, but I ordered bomb strikes and directed other people to shoot. Many, many veterans are unable to reconcile such actions in war with the biblical commandment, thou shalt not kill. When they come home from an environment where killing is not only accepted, but is a metric of success, the transition to one where killing is wrong can be incomprehensible. This incongruity can have devastating effects. After more than 10 years of war, the military lost more active duty members last year to suicide than to enemy fire. More worrisome, the Department of Veterans Affairs estimates that one in five Americans who commit suicide is a veteran, despite the fact that veterans make up 13% of the population. While I don't know why individual veterans resort to suicide, I can say that the ethical damage of war may be worse than the physical injuries we sustain. To properly wage war, you have to recalibrate your moral compass. Once you return from the battlefield, it is difficult or impossible to repair it. The Veterans Service has started calling this problem moral injury, but that's as deceptive a euphemism as collateral damage. This isn't the kind of injury you recover from from rest, physical therapy, and pain medication. War makes us killers. We must confront this horror directly if we're to be honest about the true cost of war. I didn't return from Afghanistan as the same person. My personality is the same, or at least close enough, but I am no longer the good person I once thought I was. There's nothing that I can change that... There's nothing that can change that. It is impossible to forget what happened, and the only people who can forgive me are dead. I will never know whether my actions in Afghanistan were right or wrong. On good days, I believe they were necessary, but instead I want to believe that killing, even in war, is wrong. America will participate in other wars in my lifetime, but if the decision to do so is a collective responsibility, then civilians need to have a better understanding of the consequences. The immorality of war is not a wound we can ignore, as, it, as is painfully obvious with so many veterans committing suicide. Civilians can comprehend the casualties of war because most people know someone who has died, but few know someone who has killed. When I tell someone I, I am a Marine, the next question many ask, did you kill someone? To my ears, this sounds like, what's the worst thing you've ever done? They don't realize they're asking about an intensely private matter. The question, did you kill anyone, isn't easy to answer, and it's certainly not one every veteran wants to, but... When civilians ask, I think I have a duty to respond. And if explaining what I did 6,000 miles away in a conflict, far from the public's consciousness, makes the next war less likely, then maybe my actions weren't in vain. It's a long article. I didn't read all of it. But I just wanted us to hear from somebody who participated in the war, comes home, and tries to make sense out of it. And the one paragraph that just struck me in all of this, he says, to properly wage war... You have to recalibrate your moral compass. Once you return from the battlefield, it is difficult or impossible to repair it. So I just want us to have that, that perspective um, and hear from somebody who was involved in that. And to understand that when we talk about non-resistance, it's far more than just whether we participate in war or not. All right, if you would, yeah, turn over to Romans 12. I want to look at just a few verses there um, before we wrap up. Romans 12, um, looking at verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I just want us to notice in, in verse 14 that when we are persecuted, we are called to bless, um, to bless and to not curse. So a natural response is to, to curse back, but we are to bless, to actively look to bless. Um, notice in verse 17, we are to repay no one evil for evil. So it's so easy to, when we are wrong to want to, to want to pay back. I, just, I want to give them back what they gave me. And God says, repay no one evil for evil. But rather than that, we're to actually think about what is, it, what is something that's honorable in the sight of all men. So our reaction is, I want to give it back. But God says, think about what's actually honorable and give that back in verse 17. And then in verse 19, a lot, it just sums up for me um, what we've been talking about. He says, beloved, never avenge yourself. So I love that he calls us beloved reminds us that we're loved if we are wronged. And he says, never avenge yourself. And avenge is the idea of, of trying to get revenge, to take justice into our own hands. God says, never, never do that. And the reason for that is we are, instead of doing it, we're to leave it to the wrath of God. And King James would say to give place to the wrath of God. So when we choose not to get revenge, we're saying that we're leaving that entirely up to the Lord. And the Lord says, I will repay. He's a, he is a just judge. He's merciful. And we are to give, to give that area entirely over to God. And instead of seeking revenge, he says, on the contrary, if you see your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's hungry, give him food. And this just has the idea of proactively looking for ways to meet their needs and to bless them. And then... The idea in the end, it says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the word overcome does, it has the idea of a, of a fight or a battle. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's where I really want us to, to hear this morning and think about it. When we talk about being non-resistant, it's not that we don't do anything. We actually are to engage with evil and to overcome evil, but the only weapon that we have is, is good. And God wants us to fight evil with good. So it's not that we're passive, but we just engage the way, um, the way that God wants us to engage and trust him to do that. I'm not going to take the time to go back through here, but as I would encourage you, if you look at Luke and at Romans, um, look at how much God highlights, um, I'm sorry, not Romans, there's a few other passages where God, whenever God, almost whenever God asks us to love our enemies, the one of the things he highlights is the reward. He says, your reward's going to be great. Your reward is going to be great. And he, he wants us to notice that, that it doesn't make any sense now, but in eternity, your reward will be great. Um, so look at that in, in Luke and in a few of the other passages that talk about um, the situation. In the end of Luke, um, Jesus goes on to say that 
a tree is going to bring forth, a good tree is going to bring forth good fruit and a bad tree is not. And as I look at this, this is a heart issue. What kind of fruit do I bring forth? And I need God to change my heart to bring forth, to bring forth this good. Then he ends the chapter and he says, you can hear my words and if you do them, you're like a wise man. If you choose to ignore them, you're like a, a foolish man that builds his house in the sand. And so the question for me is, as I look at all of this and these attitudes, am I going to allow God to change my heart and to build my life on what doesn't make any sense now? And trust God with the eternal price tag. And then God says, I'm going to reward you and you will be uh, like a wise man whose house stands firm. Thank you for, um, for your attention. I know we covered a lot of ground. This is one that I would have enjoyed if it would have been in a living room and we could have stopped and talked about and just discussed and said, but what about this? There were so many things that we didn't cover. Um, and I, I do want to be clear. I had shared the story of the Marine and the effects of killing, and I want us just to feel that. If you read on in Romans 13 with where I stopped, God does put government in place to punish evildoers, and we need to respect that. This is not saying that there are not consequences when people do wrong. But for the life of a believer, the, the vengeance or the revenge or the justice is something that we give entirely to God and allow him to handle for us. I'll turn the time over to Nate to close.